Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight till today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lashley. Now, Brian, we were just talking a minute before we started recording about your favorite subject, Walt Disney, and I want to go ahead and get our Disney connection for the month out of the way. It's We are contractually required to talk about Disney in every episode for some reason. So you you were aware, Brian, that Walt Disney designed the Fifinella logo for the women Air Force Service pilots, the WASP, uh, who were women flying uh, military aircraft in World War II. A lot of people might have heard of these women. They're pretty popular. There's a lot written about them, you know, not flying in combat in World War II, but in other support roles. After that war, the roles of women in military aviation become extremely limited, if not eliminated completely. But this year, 2023, is the 30th anniversary of the announcement of the first American women combat pilots. And the path to getting to that point is a very long one. It was never certain as people were going through it. So to explain this to us, to how we go from women not flying in the military after World War II to women fighter pilots in the mid-90s, we're joined tonight by Eileen Bjorkman, who's a colonel in the U.S. Air Force, retired. And in addition to being a test pilot on fighters like the F-4 Phantom and F-16 Fighting Falcon, she's also the author of the new book, Fly Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat from Knox Press. Eileen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, hey, just one quick correction. Um, I'm, I was not a test pilot. I was a flight test engineer. So, ah. um, yeah. So, I'm yeah. very sorry. <laughs> No, it's a nuance. So yeah, yeah. But I know it's confusing because I went through the test pilot school and test pilot school trains not just test pilots, but test navigators, test engineers and and other folks as well. So yeah. Fantastic. I think the important thing is that you routinely flew in the uh, F-4, which is Mike's favorite aircraft, which we are also (laughs) contractually obligated to talk about every episode. That's correct. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it was my favorite airplane to fly in. So yeah. Very nice. Um, you're also the first guest I think we've had to come back and do a second episode with us because you've been on the show before. So we're really thrilled to have you back. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. So tell us a little bit about this project, this new book. How did you get into it? Why write a book about this topic right now? Well, there's a lot of books, as you mentioned, you know, the Wasp are fairly popular. Uh, there's been quite a few books written about them. And there's also been a lot of books recently written about women of the younger generation who've actually flown in combat. Um, you have women like Martha McSally. Uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names off the top of my head. But anyway, there's quite a few books out there now. Amy McGrath is, is another one that comes to mind. There's not hardly any books that have been written about the women of my generation. You know, my generation was the women who came in in the 70s and 80s, and they were the ones who uh, started flying military aircraft as military pilots. You know, the WASP flew military airplanes, and not to take anything away from them, but they weren't actually in the military. They were civilians, and there were some attempts to to uh, get them into the military, but those fell through. So. Um, but it was really my generation that, you know, was able to come in and sustain the, you know, sustain the presence of women and then, you know, showed that women could do the job and that there was no reason for them to not be in combat. And so I just wanted to make sure, you know, my generation isn't getting any younger. And I wanted to make sure that that we got the information out there that, that this history didn't get forgotten about. Yeah. And so 
your book does to a degree tell that story. I mean, it kind of starts in the 1940s and then it, it progresses forward. And there are a lot of familiar names in here, some less so. Uh, I mean, Jackie Cochran and Baumgartner, Jeannie Holm, uh, Susan Strzok, uh, and and Kathy Rambo. So, so why did you decide to structure the book to focus on these particular individuals? Uh, and as kind of a Colleroy to that, is there a particular person whose story really resonated with you? Yeah, so... Um... I, I wanted to tell the story from, uh, you know, from the women's perspective, the you know, women who lived it, women who were there. You could just write a history, uh, you know, a straight history that talks about the policy changes and what women could do, you know, and then maybe throw in a few anecdotes here and there. But I thought it was important to write it, uh, you know, as if you were there with the women watching them go through this. And I thought it would make a more compelling story. Uh, to to really understand, you know, what the women went through, connected through these individual characters who I tried to carry throughout the book as much as I could. In some cases, as you saw, you know, there were individuals who kind of jumped in and then you never heard of, from them again because <laughs> yeah, they were they were in there just to kind of prove a point. Um, but part of the problem, too, is that because it covers such a long period of time and because it's multiple services and, you know, multiple wars and stuff, um, it's hard to have one character that just kind of carries the whole book through. And so that was the other reason, you know, that I went with the multiple characters that I did. But but they were all very carefully selected to, you know, to show different things and show to different aspects of the problem and show different women who did different things that helped to, you know, that eventually helped uh, us to get where we are today. Yeah. And that story is such a multi-generational story. So it's good that you can show all those connections. And one of the earlier aspects that you kind of focus on that frames this whole thing, of course, is the Women's Armed Service Integration Act in 1948. And that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book. Tell us a little bit about that particular act. What, what did it do or not do? Why is it so important? So that particular act gave women a permanent presence in the military in the United States. Uh, prior to that, some w women had come in even a little bit during World War One, but especially during World War Two, they were brought into the regular service, uh, not just nurse corps, so because they had nurse corps before that, um, but they were brought in uh, regular military. But the intent was at the end of those conflicts that they would go back to civilian life, that you would not have a permanent presence. Yeah, they were just there for the duration of the emergency. But in this particular case, after World War II, you know, especially the leadership and the services really liked the women. You know, they saw what they could contribute and, and what they brought to the table. And they said, hey, let's not go through this again. You know, if we have another national emergency, we need to have we need to already have some women in the military that we can build on instead of starting from scratch like we had to during World War II. So that was really the intent initially was that you would just have this small cadre of women, a few thousand in each service, uh, you know, officers and enlisted that would be there. And um, and so initially they were limited to 2% of the force. Um, so very tiny numbers were allowed. And, and actually women never even got close to that 2% number either until that was eventually lifted. Um, so there was that limitation. Um, they were not allowed to be promoted above colonel. Um, so no general officers. And there were only... Um, only you could only have one colonel for each one of the different corps. So the nursing corps in each service got a colonel, and then you had uh, the regular women uh, got a colonel. <laughs> so, so a woman would get promoted to colonel and take over as the director of that particular corps for typically a four-year period. And then when she was done with her four years, if she wasn't ready to retire, 
she, you know, she could retire if she was eligible, if she had enough time. If she wasn't ready to retire, she actually had to revert to being a lieutenant colonel. And so, yeah, you're going backwards in your career. So I would like our listeners to know that both Mike Hankins and I are sitting here shaking our heads at this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, it, it's hard to believe, isn't it? So they wouldn't just go, oh, well, you can keep on being a colonel. You know, we'll bring the new director in. And yeah, it's just, yeah, some of this stuff was just mind boggling. And then the other thing was they also put in the limitation that women could not uh, engage the enemy in combat in an aircraft. And they could not serve on combat ships. So those two pieces, um, they wanted to keep them out of combat. Uh, it's interesting that there actually wasn't anything in the law about women in ground combat um, because they, the Army could not easily come up with a definition of what that was, which should maybe tell you something about what was going to happen in the future. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the Air Force, it was easy, right? Just keep them out of airplanes and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, the Navy, just keep them off of ships, right? You know, that takes care of, you know, most of your problems. So. But those limitations, uh, you know, eventually, you know, caused, caused a lot of problems. And so many of the women that, that you discuss in the book have mentors. And so can you speak to the importance of, of mentorship in the history of women in military aviation? Yeah, it, you know, I think that most women, you know, and, and pretty much anybody in the military, really, you know, you need somebody to help you navigate the the system, if you will. So if you, especially if you want to get to the to the very top ranks, uh, you know, somebody that kind of helps guide you throughout your career, push you in the right direction, you know, give you advice on different assignments, uh, that sort of a thing. And yeah, like Jean Holm, you know, she, uh, you know, she had mentors from an early age. You know, she had men that realized how good she was and who kind of watched out for her. And, um, and and you see that with other women, you know, now women, now there's enough women around that women are mentoring women. But, you know, back in my day, most of my mentors were men, you know, <laughs> because there were no women senior to me or very few of them. And, uh, you know, I remember looking back on my career, the first time I ever met a woman colonel was when I was a lieutenant colonel. So, you know, it was so that so so having mentors in any kind of form is very important, like I said, in helping you to to navigate that system. And and also, I think to kind of especially for some of the older women, you know, helping them to figure out what's worth fighting for and what's worth just letting go for now. You know, Jean Holm was very adept at that. And I think uh, one of her mentors there in particular, you know, kind of helped her navigate those waters. You know, I think there were times when he was like, hey, I'm the general. Let me go take the spears. You know, you you tell me the problems and I'll, you know, I'll go, you know, try to, you know, try to fix things. And then, of course, then when she became a general, you know, she was able to to do that herself. Yeah, you know, as you talk about this idea of helping to navigate this complex system that is the military, that's something that really comes out in the book that I thought was really interesting is all these little aspects, not not necessarily little, but uh, the things that are easy to forget about when you look back, like we focus on these kind of big issues or big turning points, but your book really highlights some of the stuff that might at first sound a little more mundane, like promotion tracks and getting your paycheck and your housing allowance and dealing with children and there's all these issues of just kind of daily life um, that women had to overcome some serious hurdles. And can you talk about some of those issues and um, what some of those stories meant to you and how women went about solving some of the problems uh, along those lines? Yeah, you know, the you know, women were very treated very differently from men when it came to marriage and children in particular. Uh, if a woman got pregnant, you know, she was automatically discharged. 
you know, she was not allowed to, to stay in after she had the baby. In fact, if she married a man with dependent children, you know, even though they weren't her kids, they would they would force her to get out. <laughs> and, and then you had women who had husbands who were, uh, you know, when a woman married a, a man uh, who was not a military member, uh, she did not automatically get uh, get an increase in her housing allowance because because she was married. Men did. You know, it didn't matter. They could be married to a woman who was independently wealthy, you know, that had millions and millions of dollars. And the men would still get a, a basically a pay raise because they had gotten married and they had this dependent now. Uh, women had to prove that the men, that their husbands were more than 50 percent dependent upon them for their, you know, for their income. You know, it's just crazy. And, and very few women could meet that standard. It was really hard to show that, you know, that you could meet that standard. And so after a while, women just got tired of this and, and they started suing the government. <laughs> so they started suing the Air Force. And the one name you mentioned, Susan Strzok, you know, she became pregnant. And uh, and so she sued the Air Force to stay in. And the course, uh, the case was uh, going all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and then the Air Force very, this was starting to get into the early 70s and things were starting to change. And the Air Force actually just kind of backed away from that one and let her stay in. Um, and so that one actually wound up not going all the way to the Supreme Court. It was on its way there. But um, and but then that, you know, then that changed the policy so that women were allowed to, to stay in. Um, and then you had uh, uh, Sharon Frontiero, who, um, who, again, was mad because her husband he had some VA benefits, but he wasn't working. And uh, and when she got married, she didn't get an increase. And they said, oh, well, you know, standard line. And and so she sued. And uh, and she just happened to be stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base at that time, which was um, uh, the home of, at that time, brand new Southern Poverty Law Center. <laughs> and so, so she marched over there and uh, they took her case on and um, and she took it all the way up to the Supreme Court and she won. And so then that after that, the, the military had to pay uh, had to pay all the women, you know, women when they got married, you know, they got an increase in their housing allowance, just like men did. So. And like you said, these seem like little things, but if these things hadn't happened, it would have been, I think, much harder for women when they started coming into the military in larger numbers in the you know early to mid 70s uh, would have been harder for them to you know have those careers. It would have been harder for them to be in aviation, you know, if let's say you go through pilot training and then you get pregnant and they go, oh, you're gone, you know, after they just spent millions of dollars on your training. You know? and so so I think having all of these little things, like you said, they seem like they're baby steps, but all of these things together, you know, made it possible for women to then go on and do the things that they did in the 70s and beyond. Yeah. And so that's a great transition into talking about mm -hmm. the 70s. And it seems like in the 1970s, there are actually a few huge breakthrough moments, non-combat aviation roles opening up to women, uh, the service academies uh, allow women to enter the, the first class enter in uh, the fall of 76. They graduate in 1980. So why did these big changes seem to happen all at once? Uh, was it the right time? Was there something else going on? And And did the Air Force keep up with the other services on this? So I think the main things that happened that contributed to it was uh, the end of the draft and the Equal Rights Amendment. And, and actually, if you look at the history, you know, a lot of people think the draft was the more important of those two um, uh, because the draft helps all of the services. 
you know, even though the army was the only one that drafted people, because the army drafts people, if you think you're about to get drafted into the army, you might want to go talk to your air force or your navy recruiter. You, know, <laughs> you can get a better deal. <laughs> and so all of the services benefit from the draft. And and so a lot of people think that okay, the draft ended, and so you know because people no longer had incentive to join the air force and the navy, then recruiters started you know grabbing all these women and, instead. And and there is some truth to that. You know, women definitely uh, did help to to fill in some of those gaps. Um, but that was not actually seen as a solution to the problem of you know the concerns that that people had about. You know, maybe not enough people are going to want to come in now into the all-volunteer force. It was interesting. I went back and looking at all the studies, and I expected to find some studies that said, oh, by the way, you know, if you bring in this many women, that'll probably solve the problem. Nobody ever mentioned women as a potential source of, of you know, people to serve in the military in all the studies I saw. And there may have been one out there, but I, I didn't find it, you know, when I was doing my research. So, so what really happened was, uh, was the Equal Rights Amendment that passed in 72. So draft ended in 73, ERA had passed the, the year before. And again, it never actually got ratified. But when it first got passed, there was a lot of thinking that it was going to be ratified very quickly. And the service chiefs were terrified, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you, know, this, you think we've been sued before, you know, we're really gonna get sued now, <laughs> you know, if we don't start letting more women in. And so they just started letting more women in. They, made, they set goals, you know, higher and higher every year throughout the 70s to, to, to bring more women in. And, and I think some of it was just self-sustaining too. You know, once the women came in and they saw how good they were, uh, you know, that they could do the job, you know, there was more desire to, you know, to, to keep bringing women in. So um, the academies, a lot of that came about because, okay, it's sort of, a, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You start bringing more women in, well, they need to have equal opportunities. And the best way to get promoted to be a general officer is to go to one of the service academies. And so, you know, at that time, women had actually just started being allowed into ROTC, uh, in, in the late 60s and early 70s. And so then the thinking was, well, the next step is to let them into the academy. So, so again, it's kind of like these little baby steps that, that all feed off of each other. So he had asked about the, the Air Force keeping up. And, and the, the Air Force actually dragged its feet the longest on letting women fly uh, as pilots. And, and you know, they, they had women who flew as nurses, you know, your flight nurses. But, um, you know, my, my theory is that the Air Force is the only service whose main mission is to fly. Flying is really kind of a support function in the other services. And and uh, and it's just not held in, I mean, it's considered a good career field, but it's not held in the regard that it is in the Air Force. You know, in the Air Force, it's all about airplanes, it's all about flying. So, and, and I think it just took the Air Force a little longer to warm up to the idea that, you know, we, that yeah, women can do that too. You know, and if they're, if they're really gonna do things in the Air Force, we need to, we need to let them fly airplanes. Yeah, if we fast forward from that a little bit, the next kind of big moment where there's this kind of big change all at once seems to be that early 90s moment. And Desert Storm is a huge part of that. And this is something you've written about before. And the section in the book on this is really fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, what role women play in Desert Storm and uh, why that kind of created this push for a, a more significant change? Yeah, you know, it was interesting, though, because what happened then when now when you get to Desert Storm is women in the Air Force were the ones who were the predominant number of women aviators who were in Desert Storm. 
because of the kind of uh, war that it was. It was a logistics war. So you had women flying your tankers and your uh, and your transport aircraft, you know, hauling people and equipment over to the Gulf. And so you had a significant number of women participating from the Air Force. The Army had some, you know, because you had some of your units that had uh, women who flew support uh, uh, helicopters like Chinooks uh, and stuff. And then the Air, but the Navy women, for the most part, they did fly some missions, but because they were restricted from flying on the ships, that made it very difficult for them to participate in Desert Storm. So, uh, so again, the Air Force women uh, were really kind of at the, the forefront of what happened, not because of the capabilities of women in the other services. It was just because of the kind of war that it was. But women were exposed to combat during that war. I mean, it was very clear that the front lines are not as clear cut as they used to be, you know, back during World War One, World War II. Um, and that, uh, and, and it, um, it forced the public, I think, to realize that women were, you know, being put in harm's way. You, know, you had women who were jumping in bunkers to, to get away from scuds. Uh, you had a couple women who were killed, you know, just uh, doing, you know, their jobs over there. You had uh, Marie Rossi who was killed uh, after her helicopter hit an unlit uh, uh, tower, transmission tower. Uh, in the wee, wee uh, early morning hours on a particular mission. Um, so so they, I, the, the public realized, you know, that, hey, you know, this this is kind of a joke, right? We say that women aren't in combat, but they're being killed. They're being taken POW. You know, 30,000 women served over there. So, yeah, this is, this is kind, of, kind of crazy. And, and, so, um, and so as a result of that, the other thing I think that happened with Desert Storm is that at the, uh, is that it ended, it, uh, it ended the end of uh, February. And so that was the perfect timing. The, the um, Congress was just starting to debate the uh, National Defense Authorization Act for the next year, for uh, 92. And so it was perfect timing to be able to slip uh, something into the bill to repeal those uh, combat laws. And, and that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. And it's, it's almost hard to bring this up, but it, it's an important aspect of the story. So fresh from the victory in desert storm where it's almost like the united states military but in particular the the air force and the navy air arms kind of get their swagger back uh after the failures of vietnam uh and so you have this this huge victory in january and february of 91 and then that's followed a few months later in september of 91 by the tailhook scandal and not to get into the weeds on this but particularly for our listeners who might not know about that, can you briefly explain what happened and why that particular event was so important to the path of opening combat role, combat aviation roles for women? So Tailhook was um, it, Tailhook is a uh, navy uh, naval aviation organization, and uh, they uh, they had an annual conference or symposium uh, every you know. Uh, in uh, Las Vegas every year, and uh, it had been increased, growing increasingly rowdy over the years. A lot of uh, drinking and bringing in, you know, women, uh, you know, bringing in strippers, you know, that kind of a thing. Very, very raunchy behavior. And in '91, everything kind of came to a head. Um, there was, uh, there were quite a few women naval aviators that were at the conference, and uh, one of them asked the admiral. Uh, asked my admiral at an open session, you know, what he thought about, you know, allowing women into combat roles. And 
he didn't answer it very well. <laughs> he, he kind of, he was like, oh boy, you know, and so, uh, so the women weren't happy, the men weren't happy. And, and a lot of the women felt that, um, especially in the Navy, uh, a lot of the women felt that, hey, you know, we're treated like second class citizens because we can't go into combat. If you're not allowed to go to, into combat, then are you really in the military? You know, that kind of a thing. Um, there was less of that, I think, in the Air Force because so many men fly support roles in the Air Force as well, you know, non-combat kinds of roles. Um, but uh, but it was particularly bad in the Navy um, that they it wasn't just women aviators that they treated poorly. They treated all women poorly. And there were men at Tailhook that had uh, t-shirts that said women are property on them you know it was really bad and pornography was very bad in squadrons in the navy and I, I think it was just not a good environment for women at all so and so things came to a head at tailhook um, there were quite a few women who uh, in 91 uh, there were quite a few women who were assaulted uh, one of them was an admiral's aide who was the one that actually originally kind of broke the story if you will and uh and then they started investigating and they found out that there were dozens of women uh, that, that had been molested, assaulted. Uh, and, uh, and it was a leadership failure. You know, the leadership was well aware that this, had th this thing had been getting out of hand for years and they hadn't done anything about it. And a lot of the senior leadership in the Navy uh, got um, uh, was uh, forced to resign, you know, or had to retire, uh, you know, that sort of a thing. And then so the final report was coming out. Um, in uh, May of um, of '93, so and it was a really bad report. You know, this is where all the truth was coming out about all the horrible things that had happened. Um, and uh, and Bill Clinton, when he had gotten elected president in '92 and taken over in '93, he had said that he was going to open you know combat roles to women because the laws had were no longer in place. But the they their administration was dragging their feet, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and the service chiefs weren't helping, you know, because they're like, oh, we still don't think this should happen, you know, this kind of stuff. And, and, um, and there's some thinking, I don't know how true this is, but there's some thinking that the Navy, so the Navy actually did start to go out and say, hey, we want to go ahead and, and change the, the policies. And there's some thinking that they knew that that report was about to come out and they knew it was bad. And they thought that, hey, let's get ahead of this and, and let's uh, let's go ahead and open the rules. And eventually, so within a few weeks of all of that happening, that was when Les Aspen announced that they were going to open combat roles to women. So in aviation. And uh, I think it was going to happen no matter what. Uh, you know, it, been, it was going to happen, I think, within that first you know, Clinton administration because he had said it, that he was going to make that happen. But I do think Taylor played a role in. Uh, you know, and in, in kind of, you know, if you will, that last nail in the coffin if you will, that, that made it happen when it did. So, yeah, otherwise they might have dragged it out for another year or so. But I think that did that did help kind of push it over the edge there. Yeah. Well, one aspect that also makes the book stand out is, you know, you aren't just talking about this from afar. You lived this right. You mentioned before you're talking about the women of your generation. Um, you know, the book often breaks into first person. And you kind of weave your story and your career into this, which is really powerful, I thought, as a reader. So can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your path and how your story intersects with all of this? Yes. So I came in in 1980. Um, I went through officer training school because I decided late to join the military. But when I first came in, 
you know, it didn't take me long to realize if you're going to be in the Air Force, you probably should be flying. <laughs> so at least in those days, maybe not so much nowadays, but um, my eyes weren't good enough to go to pilot training. Um, so I thought about being a navigator, but I actually was not sure I wanted to do that because I would not have the opportunity to fly fighters or bombers, you know, and, and nothing wrong with flying, you know, the other aircraft, but I just kind of felt like, is that what I really want to do? If I, if all I'm allowed to fly is, you know, tankers or, or transport aircraft. Um, and so while I was, uh, you know, trying to decide if that's the route that I wanted to go, I found out that you could, uh, you could be a flight test engineer in the Air Force. I didn't know anything about this. I, I met a guy who'd been a flight test engineer and he got me interested in that. And he also told me that you could go through test pilot school as an engineer and, and you could fly in the backseat of fighters. And that was like it for me. You know, I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> so that kind of, kind of set me on that path. And, um, so I spent the first mm, about 10 years of my career, 10, 12 years of my career doing, you know, flight testing, uh, going to school. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then I, uh, from there, I uh, went off and did various assignments at the Pentagon, uh, went back to testing as a squadron commander, uh, you know, just did various things uh, throughout my career uh, that were kind of going back and forth between testing, a lot of modeling and simulation, uh, you know, that sort of a thing. So, um, but I, had, but I had a very interesting career and, and because I was in the test business, you know, I got to fly in all different kinds of aircraft and, and I realized early that this is stupid that women can't fly in these airplanes. I was only allowed to fly in them because they weren't combat airplanes. They were considered test airplanes. Um, and, uh, you know, and so I figured out early that there was just absolutely no reason for women to not be flying in these airplanes. And in many cases, I found that I did better than some of my male classmates, you know, because you know, women have a lower center of gravity. It's easier for us to pull G's, actually. <laughs> you, know, there's, you know, I just... I just didn't think there was any, any, there certainly were no physical reasons and I didn't see any mental reasons either. And so I was very much uh, in favor of allowing women to, um, you know, to be able to, to be in those uh, roles. I want to ask, since you're talking about all these different airplanes you've flown in, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I'd say the F4. That's, that's usually the one I pick. Uh, it was just, uh, I wasn't fishing for that, but I'll take it. <laughs> it was just a great airplane to fly in. And I had a lot of time in the F-16 as well, in the back of the F-16. But, you know, I always compare them to kind of like the F-4 is kind of like a Cadillac and the, the F-16 is kind of like a hot rod, you know, and, and, you know, they both have their place. And the F-4, though, just always seemed to me like an airplane that I wouldn't want to go to war in. You know, it was a very sturdy airplane. It was very honest. Um, you know, obviously, I never went to war in it, but uh, but it's just, uh, I think also it had the cachet of, you know, having flown in Vietnam, you know, and all of the aerial victories and and that sort of a thing. You know, of course, the F-16 nowadays has some of that as well. So, but um, I think just, you know, the idea that I was being, that I was able to fly in something that was the workhorse in the, in the Vietnam War, I think was, um, uh, that, that to me is what kind of put it over the edge as being just a really cool airplane. And yeah, I would point out that the, um, uh, is it a Strike Eagle that's on the cover? A Strike Eagle and T-38? Is that, is that right? No, no F-4 yes. on the cover of the book. <laughs> No, that's because women never got to fly the F4 before, you know, were, except for the few of us who were in testing. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the Strike Eagle picture, um, the, actually, the reason I wound up with that picture was, first of all, it was the best picture I could find. So, yeah, that would fit with the other stuff. So, um, but, uh, but also, there's a pretty significant number of women in the Strike Eagle community. And I think some of that's because it's a two-seater. So, you know, you have both pilots and, and whizzos. So, but, um, 
but I was I was surprised, you know, when I started going through some of the numbers and doing interviews and that kind of thing, how many women are in that particular weapon system. I and and you know, and some of that's just again, you talk you talk about the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, women see other women flying the F-15E and they go, Oh, I want to go fly that, you know. And and so, you know, you don't see that so much in the F-22 community. There's very few women. And I think some of it's because there's very few women, you know, they go, gee, do I really want to go do that? when I can go fly in the F-15E and, you know, be with a bunch of other women. Yeah. Well, fantastic. This is a great book. We're really uh, glad that you wrote it. If you go back and listen to older episodes where Brian and I are talking about, you know, books we wish we could read or things that we want more research on, this was one of the topics that we kind of consistently went to of we need more research about, you know, women in military aviation post-World War II. And so this is, I think, a great entry into that field. So. Thank you for writing it and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And I, I hope this spurs lots of other books about women in that time period because there's millions of stories that haven't been told. You know, I can only fit so much in this book. So yeah. I will add in on on kind of a related note that I had a student of mine here at the Air Force Academy who was writing a paper about the history of women in in space, not aviation, but in, in space power. Uh, and she was becoming increasingly frustrated at the lack of historiography in the field. Uh, and, and I had to tell her, like, yeah, not, now you see the problem. Now you see where there's uh, a hole and there's a need to fill it. And there are so many more stories uh, that need to be po- told. Uh, and so, Eileen, thank you. Thank you for writing this. Well, thank you. Yeah. And for those who want to uh, grab that story, it's again called Fly Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat. That's from Knox Press. Uh, Eileen, where can we find more of your work online? So, uh, well, first, if you want to go to my website, uh, EileenBjorkman.com. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, I guess it's X now, as uh, Aviation Hist Gal. <laughs> and then, um, and my uh, this particular book uh, is available in hardback through Barnes & Noble. Uh, Amazon has sold out, uh, but Amazon is selling paperback versions of it as well. Fantastic. Brian, what about you? Are you still online? Uh, I am. You can find me at brianlastly.com. You can also find me at the website formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and as of about eight hours ago, you can also find me on Blue Sky. Wow. Branching out. <laughs> Fantastic. Mike, what about yourself? I am at mwhankins.com. And all of us are online, of course, at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us uh, an email, a message, or submit an article for publication on the site, please go to balloonsadrones.com slash submissions. Thank you all, and we will see you next time.